Folks, we're, we're turning to Luke chapter 10 this morning. Um, I, I don't know about you. I have had a, a busy couple of weeks, um, and uh, it, it's been fairly hectic. And so um, as I was preparing these messages, I, I really only got, well, tonight's message is still a working progress, so that's, that's my plans for this afternoon. Uh, it's just been that busy. But at the same time, I, I, I can't help but smile at the goodness of God. Uh, I can't help but uh, kind of have, there's this kind of inner monologue going on in my heart that sort of says, Lord, uh, your sense of humor is kind of wonderful. Um, because I, I don't know about the rest of you, but I have found these messages uh, that I'm preaching this today to be what I've needed. <laughs> and so um, if you don't get anything out of it, I, I've, I've had a good time in the scriptures with this this week, so um, it's, it's, been, it's been beneficial for me. Um, tonight, we're going to be looking at, at the prayer life of Jesus. I was hoping to do a, a lot of chapter 11 tonight. That's not going to happen. What I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of just cut it off uh, after the Lord teaches the disciples how, not how to pray, but teaches them to pray. Tonight's going to be about that desire, that enthusiasm for the place of prayer. We all know how to pray. We just talk to God. But what about that desire to get to the place of prayer? What about that heart to go and pray? That's, that's our message tonight, and so I'd encourage you to come back and to hear that. But really then from next week, there's a lot of talk about Satan and, and uh, Beelzebub and interacting with demon possession. We're going to talk about that next week. Uh, so you'll be glad that that's not on the small group road that we're talking about <laughs> this one in our small groups this week. Um, and... Yeah, I, I, I think that um, it's, yeah, God's going to bless today. I just feel it. Okay. In chapter 10, there is a distinct change of tone in the letter that Dr. Luke is writing. Back in chapter 9, uh, four nights ago in the evening service, we looked at the, the transfiguration and how, you know, we all love to be up at the mountaintop. But we can't stay there. We can't stand those mountaintop experiences where there's, you know, sort of good feelings and, and fluffiness and, and all that. But sometimes we'll have to get back down into the real world and, and do the work that we're called to do. But it's those mountaintop experiences that motivate us and keep driving us forward. But in chapter 9, verse 51, we're told that Jesus set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. That's the turning point. From this point to chapter 19, the travelogue is of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, where he's going to get betrayed, arrested, tried, executed. This is the turning point. And the doctor is going from diagnosis to prognosis. He spent all this time so far sharing stories of the miracles that he has done and, and, and the, the, the awe of, of the people with the authority that he's taught with. The diagnosis must be that this is the Son of God. The diagnosis, the realization, okay, the only conclusion that we can come to is this is the Messiah. Because ultimately, last time out, we saw the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Forget Moses. Forget Elijah. Forget the law and the prophets. This is the one you're looking at. This is the fulfillment of all these things. He's the one. Diagnosis complete. But now the prognosis. What are we going to do with this information? How do we move forward then knowing that Jesus is the Christ? Up to this point, Jesus' ministry has been in Galilee and kind of the just northern kind of a 10, 15 square mile radius. It's been a very small area. 
Luke is focused on the works of Jesus, but now we're going to focus on the words of Jesus. We're going to see a lot more red letters in your Bible if you have uh, <laughs> those Bibles with you. Um, we're going from the works to the words. We're going from the miracles to the messages. Or another way to look at it is we're looking at the revelation from Christ to the rejection of Christ. And it will accumulate then on the cross at the end of Luke. Why this shift now? Well, he's on his way to Jerusalem. We need to shift to what that means. And it's this time that he's on the road, these next six months, or the last six months of his earthly ministry, he's going to be preparing them for, for having to go on without him physically there, which is very helpful for us because that's how we live now. We don't have him physically with us. And so the next chunk of the book is going to be really for much more applicable for us. Now, the first 16 verses of of chapter 10 are really powerful, but it's not the focus today. These verses are rules for short-term mission and the reality of spiritual warfare. In verse 2, Jesus turns around and says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And we've heard many sermons about that, haven't we? But have you realized that in the very next verse, in the same breath, he says, and I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves. That's why you don't have many laborers, Jesus. That's why there's not too many volunteers. That's not an easy job. Right? I mean, and that's why the solution isn't to kind of guilt people into mission or force people into serving in churches. Because that's not how you're going to be. They need to be called. They need to say, okay, look, it's not going to be easy. Serving God's going to be hard, but it's worth it because it's in my heart to do it, and I can't not do it. We need to be called. That's why we pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers. It has to be him calling them out. People need to be called to serve, not shoved into service. And so Jesus gives some guidelines in that and dispatches 72 off in pairs, uh, in pairs of two, uh, to prepare the way for him en route to Jerusalem. Then verse 13 onwards is ultimately what happens when people fail to respond to the gospel. It's, it's on them. The message is good, okay? The gospel is a good message. You can't mess it up. And if the messenger is faithful, okay? And okay, that maybe is, is sometimes a wee bit harder. But if the messenger is faithful and delivers the message clearly, you can't do any more than that. And Jesus, in leaving this area in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, heading down south now towards Jerusalem, calls out some of the towns who had more miracles than anywhere else. Capernaum, Bethsaida, they had, you know, had what Isaiah and Jeremiah cried out to God for and spent so much of the book saying, God, we want to see the Messiah. We want to see this kingdom come. We want to see things happen. And, and these towns saw what they longed to have. The revelation of the Messiah, miracle-working power. Chorazin had nothing. It's not recorded in Scripture. We don't have any of the miracles that Jesus did recorded in Chorazin. Yet it bore witness to many miracles and didn't respond with the repentance that led to salvation. See, the sin of these cities here isn't that they hated Jesus. Their sin isn't that, 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 that they got violent and they wanted to cast stones and throw them out. That's not what happened to Jesus in these towns. What happened is these towns wanted the show, but ultimately they were indifferent to him. They wanted, sure, yeah, we'll get the stuff, Jesus, you're useful to have around, but, you know, we can take or leave you. You know, if it was someone else doing the stuff, the miracles, yeah, happy days. We're not that fussed on you. We just want what you can do for us. So let's pick up this message then 
in, in verse 17, as those 72, 72 guys come back, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Bit of a subject change. Seems a wee bit strange that he's, he, that's his response. Let's read on. Behold, I have come, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. These guys came back absolutely buzzing. They were so excited. Hey, hey, I, 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 I spoke to the guy and, and he had never been able to walk and he got up and he walked. I went back to his house. I was dancing with him and his wife and his family. Oh, it was amazing. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I, 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 I prayed with a woman who had never been able to speak and, and then she, she was spent the day and she just told me her life story. Oh, that's amazing. I cast out a demon. Really? I cast out three demons. Oh, no way. You got a hat trick. No way. Oh, that's amazing. And they're talking, 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 talking. And then Jesus seems to kind of just say, well, okay, you're excited about the battles that you've won, but let me tell you about the war. I saw Satan fall. You saw some infantry go down. I saw the commander-in-chief go down. Let's talk about that. I was there when he fell. Now, when it comes to the devil... We'll talk more about it ne next week. I don't like talking about him. I don't like thinking about him. I certainly don't talk to him. Uh, there's some Christians and they, they'll run around and they're, they're rebuking the devil. I got a guy for that, all right? Why, why wrestle a snake whenever there's a snake handler with you? It's my thoughts on it, all right? I'm not interested in talking. I'll go to Jesus. I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to go to him. I got a guy for that. I'm not going to interfere with it. I, he's too big for me. I'm going to go to the one who's bigger than him. But when it comes to the scripture, we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions, important questions that most people ask and not an awful lot of people come up with the answers, which is, why would God create the devil? Very complicated answer. The short version is, he didn't. He didn't create the devil. He created a beautiful spiritual being that fell. And in falling from heaven, he became our adversary. There are two important scriptures. You can write them down, jot them down, and you can look them up later. One is Ezekiel 28, and the other is Isaiah 14. Now, in Ezekiel 28, Satan is called the anointed cherub that covers. It basically, he has a special place of guarding the throne of God, standing sentry at the throne of God. If you imagine some of those pictures of kings and queens of old, and they've got a guard, the, high, the most highly trained guard, and they're standing beside the throne. That was what uh, Lucifer was, call, was called to do. Some describe him as being the worship leader of heaven. It's a bit of a misnomer that. That's not quite what he did. Rather, he is the appointed cherub who covers. But he went from the appointed cherub that covers to the appointed cherub that covets. He coveted the throne. He wanted it. He saw God in the throne. He saw all that worship going towards him. He wanted some of that. He wanted some of it for himself. He was numero uno, minus uno. And it was really that playing number two that got him. 
And so when we go to Isaiah 14, we read, Oh, how you've fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, O morning star, son of the morning, son of the dawn. For you've said in your heart, I'll exalt myself above the stars. I will be like the most high. And he says five times in that little section, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And when he said that in his heart, that's what turned him. Up until that point, there was only one will in the universe. Up until that point, it was all harmonious. There was one perfect will and everyone was more than happy to enjoy that will. But when he said in his heart, I want, I will. When he pushed for that status, when he sought to climb, that's when he fell. And so Jesus says, I was there when that happened. And I love verse 20. When Jesus tells them, oh, these men who have seen great victories and they're buzzing, they're on a spiritual high, they're in a really good place. And and they are. They've seen amazing victories in human terms and spiritual terms. They've seen amazing things. They've done amazing things. And he says, guys, that shouldn't be what makes you happy. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. There's something greater. There's a greater joy. There's a greater celebration and victory than even in serving the Lord. Sometimes you can get so involved in ministry, and this is one of my biggest things. I spend uh, maybe 15 hours a a week preparing the sermon materials for Sunday. And so while I am not confusing this with my devotional life, see, when you spend 15 hours in the study and you're surrounded by books, that's when it's hard to distinguish between what's devotional and what is serving. What's for me and what's for everyone. And it can be very difficult sometimes to distinguish between the two sometimes because it can be so easy that what you do for God defines your relationship with God. And so you say, look, I'm a Christian. I serve here and here and here. I do this and this and this. And we don't actually talk about our relationship with God. We don't say, I'm a Christian Not I do, but I am a Christian and I am a recipient of his grace. I am someone who he has loved. I am someone who he has brought into his family. I am, and we don't talk about that, but rather in terms of what we do or what we don't do. And we do it all the time. And it's not that we forget about grace or forget who we are. We don't do that. But what we do is we confuse the order of importance. And we'll have Christians who worship, worship services. And they get so excited and they look around them and there's people raising their hands and they're singing and there's maybe people in tears and they're going, yes, this is what it's all about. This is amazing. This is great. It is great. But it's not the greatest joy a Christian can have. This is why David wrote, return unto me the joy of your salvation and then I'll teach men your ways. Give me that joy that comes from you and and who I am in you and then I can serve. Give me a joy in you. Then let the service come as an overflow of that joy. Don't get those things reversed, folks. It happens so much, and that's what happens, and you get burned out that way, or you get discouraged that way, because it isn't always easy. It's not always miraculous. It's not always an upward curve in service. It can be hard, and there's low points, and it's a struggle, and it's a fight. The way you get through those lower points 
It's because your joy isn't based in how things are going, but in who you are in Christ. Serving God is a wonderful privilege that we all have. It's a wonderful calling that we all have, but it's not the source of our Christian joy, but it is the fruit of that joy in knowing we belong to Him. And I, and I wonder, do you, how many times this week have you just stopped to think? And if you haven't, I, I want to encourage you to start doing this from now on. You are saved. As bad as life may be this week, as tough as the trials get, guess what? You're not going to hell. You have been rescued. You have been redeemed. You have been bought at a great price. You, there is value and worth in your life. And you've been adopted and you're deeply and profoundly loved by the Father. You are cherished. And that should be able to get you through today, this moment. Because the truth is, it could be so much worse. Say, oh, Jeff, but I can't believe I have all these trials. I can't believe I have all these burdens. I can't believe I have all these things going on. Listen, everybody on earth has trials and burdens and difficulties. I have not met a single person who has not got a trial or a burden. You may look down and think, well, that's not a real problem. I trust, I promise me this. I can point you to people and they'll look at your problems and say, it's not as bad. But here's the thing, for the Christian, these trials are temporary. Remember when 2 Corinthians 4, we did it in the autumn, reminds us for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Yes, it can be hard. It can be hard living this life and serving him, but it doesn't compare to what is coming. It doesn't compare to who we are in him. So we think of ourselves in that. Folks, in the trials, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice that your name is in the book. Because when everything else goes up and down and is inconsistent and consistently inconsistent and things change and circumstances change and relationships change, one thing remains the same. Your name is written in heaven. And so even in the best of times in this life, when you see God work and you see answers to prayer, and we've seen answers to prayer this week, and we've seen things happen, and God has been good, even in those moments, we don't worship the moment. We worship the one who has saved us. And we rejoice in that and make a habit and make that the anchor of your life. And in the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. Notice the Trinity there. The Son praying in the Spirit to the Father. Trinity. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from these wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The Trinity in harmonious oneness and beauty. But see specifically here how the Son and the Father come as a package deal. You can't have the Father without having the Son. It is a package deal. Jesus would say, you believe in God, believe also in me. 
See, you'll hear people saying, and there's people probably in your workplace or in your school, someone say, you know, all roads go to heaven. It doesn't matter. You have got your path. I got my path. But, you know, as long as we have that kind of spiritual goal, we'll all get to the same place. They are right in one sense, in that it doesn't matter what path you take. We all stand before God. We all stand before God to give an account of our lives and to give an account of what we have done with Christ. But there is only one path, one way, one person, one name that gets you in God's presence saved. It's the name of Jesus. There's only one way that your name can be written in the book, and that's Jesus. Jesus said, no one can get to the Father except through me. So it doesn't matter how good you've been or how often you come to church, you can't do it without Christ in you. That's why it's called Christ in you, the hope of glory because glory is ahead and our hope is in, 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 in that we will be there because of Christ and so turning to his disciples he said privately so away from the other 70 80 people that are around about him he says to these 12 blessed are the eyes that see what you see for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So this little section finishes off. He's called out those cities in, in verse 13, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, and these large groups of people because they weren't interested in really knowing Christ and really getting to know him or the Father through him. There was just apathy towards him as a savior. I mentioned before Jeremiah and Isaiah. Add to that list, like I said, Daniel, who all predicted the coming of the Messiah. Just, they wanted to have it. They wanted to be part of it, but weren't able to see it. Jesus says, you guys, (laughs) you've seen and heard only what these guys should dream about. What are all these verses about what are all these verses trying to point us towards? Right from verse 1. I hear, never, ever, ever, ever lose sight of how precious this message is. Never take your salvation for granted. Never get casual about the gospel. This is the power of God in our midst. This is the difference between eternal life with God and eternal life away from God. Miracles and signs and wonders, yeah, they're all awesome. And praise God that we get to see glimpses of that every now and again. But they never did defeat the enemy of our souls like Christ did on the cross. Never get caught up in the lesser things that the gospel loses its all. No, it's not always easy sharing the gospel Yes, we are in a minority. The laborers are few because it's going against the grain of the world, sheep up against the wolves. But it's precious and it's astounding and it's the only way. Make sure you treasure that. Make sure that, that yeah, yes, God will go with you and you'll see amazing things on your journey with him. But never forget the really precious bit is that is the salvation that you enjoy, that your name is written in heaven. You've seen the Messiah. You've seen what people were only hoping for. That's why people got saved in the Old Testament. It was still the cross. 
But people got saved in the Old Testament because they looked forward and had faith in what the Messiah would do. And so everything that they had was yearning forward, yearning for what they couldn't quite have yet. Yet we can taste and see that the Lord is good. We can, we have it. Behold, the lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is not a modern-day lawyer, you know, suit and briefcase. This was a <coughs> theological scholar, uh, an expert in the law of Moses. And these guys love to talk and discuss about what the law of Moses would look like in different scenarios. And it's a good question. It's a really good question, but it's got a wrong motivation. It's not like he really wants to know the answer. He's testing Jesus. He wants to see if Jesus can answer it. So it's a good question, but a bad motivation. Also, it's got a wrong preposition. He says, what must I do? What do I have to do? What boxes do I have to take so I can guarantee that I'm going to heaven? What do I have to do to get saved? It's interesting because that's not the message, right? Jesus has just told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the answer. So how does Jesus answer this? Well, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What do you think? What, what does the Bible tell you that the way is? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbors as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, this is interesting because notice that Jesus is dealing with a guy who's all about the Old Testament. He's all about the law of Moses. He is a scholar in this area. So Jesus doesn't say, away, look, just shut up about your books. They don't mean anything anymore. Forget all these things that you've thought about. I'm not even going to talk. I'm not even going to dignify that with the response. No, what Jesus is doing here is sending him back into what he knows. He's going to address his question from his, this guy's perspective. So it's not a one-size-fits-all answer, okay? So if someone asks you the same question, you don't say this to someone necessarily. But Jesus is working with this guy from his perspective. And so he says, look, I'm, and I'm sure he even said in such a way, he'll say, and uh, even your neighbor as yourself. You have to say, you know, I asked the question, but uh, I've got a really good answer for it. So uh, just letting you know, guys, I'm pretty smart when it comes to the law. And Jesus turns around and goes, ta-da, yeah, A, A star, brilliant. That's the answer. Do it. Do it. Do it and you'll have eternal life. Okay, now, is this the way to get saved? Is this what you've been taught, how you get saved? Well, no, not really. But technically, you could say, yes, it is. Because he's saying, be perfect. If you can be perfect, if you can maintain that standard, you can, you'll be saved. I promise you, we'll let you in. If you can consistently and completely, totally, at every point, love everyone and God as much as you love yourself, we'll let you in. Because what he's saying is be perfect and you'll live. But we know that that's not the approach that you should take because Paul will summarize it by saying all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one can hit that standard. We've all messed up somewhere along the way. 
And so what Jesus is doing is revealing the fundamental flaw in this guy's approach. It's a hypothetical because no one's... Have you ever met someone who's met that standard? Consistently? Totally? Completely? I've never met anyone. I'm certainly not that guy. I've never looked at the Ten Commandments and went, yes, 10 out of 10. That's not me. I look at the Ten Commandments and go, oh, man. Oh, didn't do that. Oh, no, okay, yeah. Oh, I've done that one, but I haven't done this one. Because the law sets the bar too high. Nobody can, can do this. So the response to when Jesus says, do this and live, it should have caused that man to be honest with himself and then humble and say, we see God, that's the problem. That's the problem. I want to be able to do that. I've set my mind and my heart to try and do it, but I can't. I can't reach that standard through a lifestyle of my own or accomplish these things. I am hopeless. I am helpless. I need the forgiveness of God. I need the mercy of God. That's what the law is supposed to do, by the way. And I hope you know that because Paul in Romans 3 verse 20 would tell us, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law wasn't there to fix you. It's there to convict you. Your reign, which should make you go, oh, Lord, I'm toast. (laughs) I'm stuck. I, I need grace. I can't do this by myself. I need the forgiveness of God. And so the law says, do this and live. But in John, we'll hear Jesus say, I have come that you may have life. The law says, do it, and the result will be life. Jesus says, I'll give you life, and then you can go and do it. Rather than being the source of life, holiness is the proof of life. But this guy, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Because we would technically say, well, look, that's not really for us. I mean, a guy, Jericho, mm, no, I don't really fancy that, Jesus. I mean, here's a man who's half dead. We don't know who he is. He's unconscious and naked. There's no way of defining who he is. But the people listening to Jesus are thinking, but if I go there, if I touch him, if I help him, I become unclean. I become defiled. And then I create distance between me and God, not create closeness between me and God. So you you can maybe get someone else to help, but you can't really go and interfere with those kinds of things. So these religious guys, like this lawyer talking to Jesus, that they, they um, would know this. That's what they would have done. They would have done exactly what the priest and the Levite would have done. They don't want to get cooties from this guy who's lying naked on the ground. And I smile because then Jesus takes the most hated person that any of these people could imagine and makes him the hero. A Samaritan. It's almost like a pantomime and they go, boo, Samaritan, Ugh. Samaritan came, and as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, when he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. 
which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So if you want to be a good neighbor, which one was the neighbor? If you're going to love your neighbors, which one is that? He says, the one who showed him mercy. Do you see how he answers the question? He doesn't even say the Samaritan. They're happy to talk about the priest. They're happy to talk about the Levite. But when Jesus says Samaritan, these guys aren't even going to say his name. They'll just say, oh, the one who showed mercy. That's how much they were hated. And Jesus says, okay, go and do that. Go and do likewise. You want to know who your neighbor is? Your neighbor is the person who's in need. Anyone who in need. You're telling me you love the Lord with everything that you have. Well, there's people around you in need. need. So, so, So you're falling short. You don't meet the requirements. You want to be Christ-like? You love your neighbor. A few weeks ago, we talked about loving your enemy. Now Jesus is bringing it even closer to home. Love your neighbor, the people right on your doorstep, whoever they are. You don't get to choose who they are. But by the way, you don't get to choose how you treat them either. The call is to love them. That should be the overflowing nature of someone who is saved. You love the people around you. Now, as they went on their way, uh, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now, a lot of times people will really slag off Martha for this. Uh, Before we do that, just think about your own homes. Whenever there's an important guest coming over, just how busy does it get? How stressful do, do you all get? Making sure everything's sitting just right. Making sure that everything is brought in and everything's at just the right temperatures in the oven. And you're, it's a busy, stressful time. Now imagine that that person's God. How much more stress does that add to the scenario? I mean, you want to do it right. And so it's important, I mean, can, so before we get mad at Martha, can we all agree we'd be just as busy fussing over it if we knew that Jesus was coming to our house for physical, actual supper? I mean, what do you serve the Son of God? Villefonts? Quiche? I don't think Marxies has a, as an aisle for this. I mean, you don't, okay, you don't do deviled ham or deviled eggs. I mean, I think those are the two that you sort of can rule out, you know, you use a wee bit of discernment. But apart from that, what do you serve him? So she's busy, she's flustered, she's serving. But it says, not that she was busy with serving, but she was distracted with serving. There's nothing wrong with being busy serving. The problem is when you're distracted serving. She's on her feet. And so you get the picture that here's a woman of action. Mary is a woman of adoration. And I'm not here to tell you that one is bad and one is good. Uh, what I want to say is both are important in balance, but if you have to choose between sitting or standing, then choose sitting. Because if you sit now at the feet of Jesus, you'll be able to stand tomorrow, during, in, enduring the trials that you face. If you fail to sit, eventually your legs will get tired and you'll fall. Learn to take time to sit at the feet of Jesus. To me, this is echoing, rejoicing not in your service, but that your name is written in the book of life, right? Sitting is important in order to stand and serve. So she marries, sorry, Martha is busy in, in the house. 
And she's like, okay, listen, God's in my house. I've got to do something. I've got to make the most of this opportunity. I may never get this opportunity again. I want to spend this time doing it. And Mary is in the other room saying, yeah, exactly. I may never get this opportunity again. I'm going to take this time to sit at the feet of Jesus. I'm going to absorb it all. I want to be like a sponge and just absorb it all in. I don't want to miss anything. But it's interesting that Martha was distracted and so she comes to Jesus and I watch, Lord, do you not care? You ever said that to God? God, do you even care? We all have, of course you have. You don't care that my sister's left me to serve alone? And what's worse, then she tells Jesus what to do. Make her help me, God. Make her get involved. I guess technically it counts as a prayer, I suppose. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. Many good things, many important things. Serving, hospitality, putting on a, a, a work on a service for the Lord is important. But notice, Jesus doesn't say one thing is more important than the other. He actually says one thing is necessary. It's like what you're doing is good, but one thing's of vital importance. One thing's necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. That will not be taken away from her. Now, he says her name twice, so don't miss this. It's a, when you say a name twice, it's one, the first is to get their attention, and the second one is to get their, get their focus. Martha, 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 listen to me. I'm speaking to you now on an intimate term. Like, like we know each other, Martha. You're worried about so many things. I, I wonder, are you worried this morning and getting distracted by so many other things? So many important things. Maybe it's involved in the church where there's things at home, where there's things with family, where there's things at work, and, and, and it's just weighing down and it's heavy. Work without worship will produce worry. Work without worship will produce worry or action without adoration will produce anxiety or aggravation. It's, it's the same truth. Times of sitting are important so that you can stand and endure the, the test more. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking in all that you can. Get to every Bible study that you can. Get out to small groups this week. Get back out to church tonight. Don't just sit in front of the TV saying, well, I'm resting. No, no, enjoy the fellowship because that helps you stand. Those that wait upon the Lord, says Isaiah 40. Those, that wait, those who sit at his feet, they will renew their strength. Sitting in front of the TV will not renew your strength. But those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and they will not faint. So let me ask you this. As we finish, are you encumbered in the kitchen or are you encountering Christ? It is possible to have both, to have the best of both. Martha had to learn the lesson Jesus taught the disciples. Serving is amazing. It's doing great things for God is spectacular. It's wonderful. But don't rejoice in it. Don't rejoice in that. Don't anchor yourself in the things that you do for God, but anchor yourself in the things that God has done for you. 
what he is doing in you and what he will do, that your name is written in heaven. That was the problem with the church in Ephesus. You can track the church of Ephesus throughout the whole New Testament from, from Acts now in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in First and Second Timothy. But then when you get to, to the book of Revelation, you hear Jesus saying, I know your works. I know your labor. You've done so much. You've done great things, but you've left your first love. But here's the thing. If we hold on to our first love, and then serve the Lord, our service will be so much better. Work without worship produces worry. So I wonder, are you worried this morning? Are you stressed this morning? Are you flat out busy this morning? Can I suggest perhaps your priorities need slightly refocused, realigned. Spend some time refocusing your heart. Delight in Him. Make him the, the, the anchor of your soul. Make him your joy. Not church. Not serving. Not busyness. Not worship experiences. But him. Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Luke has moved from diagnosis to prognosis. What will we do now that we know he is God? My answer is simple. We delight in him. We run to him. We go to him. We lean on him. We rest in him. That's what we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in you we 